Amplify, Creators of Color Podcast Network. Well, hello, hello, hello. This is Caritza Mosley-Jones, and we are here today for a bonus episode of Pearls of Blackness. And so you're probably wondering, like, a bonus episode, why is there a bonus episode this month? Well, um, that is due to the fact that I was um, honored to be a part of a UTC, University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, um, which is our local university. University, one of the local universities here in Chattanooga, um, with a collaboration for Rise, um, which is oh, where my podcast is sponsored by, right? They're sponsored by Rise Chattanooga. So they had a community speaker series, and I was asked to be a part um, of that series and actually to be featured as a speaker in that series. Um, and this was in conjunction, like I said, with Rise Chattanooga and the UTC Department of History. Um, of course, due to the pandemic, we're still doing things virtually. So this was a Zoom speaker series. But um, what they did was they wanted to connect com- um, the communities um, for a series of talks about the struggle for racial justice and equity. And so these conversations uh, were used to bring theory to life as students engage local leaders like myself um, on their struggles and victories. And this was their spring speaker series. Um, like I said, it's an ongoing partnership between RISE and the Department of History at University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. So I was honored to be the second speaker featured in this speaker series. And this was on uh, last week, last Tuesday, I believe. And this was quite an amazing um, experience for me. I was able to um, dialogue with about 20 plus students uh, or more actually, um, as they led a conversation asking me questions about my life, about my professional um, experiences, about my political experiences, about my experiences being an African-American female um, and the struggle for racial justice and equity as it relates to me uh, and my life. And they had some amazing questions, some amazing questions. Um, And they were really thought provoking. Um, You could tell they had put some thought into it. And of course, um, it caused me to have to think a lot um, in answering to be sure that I was being as transparent and candid as I could to give them um, the most um, adequate responses. Um, Like I said, there were a lot of questions. And so uh, we were set on a time constraint. Um, Well, I wouldn't say constraint, but we had a time limit for the series session. And so that was about 75 minutes. And of course, there were still questions to be answered. So I decided to do a bonus episode of Pearls of Blackness today to continue that discussion and answer the questions that were um, sent to me by the students at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga to um, to answer them. So um, we're just going to get right to it. And uh, the first question says, uh, in their class, they discussed educational inequality throughout American history. And uh, they're asking me if I can speak to what educational inequality looks like in Hamilton County schools. And this was a question that was asked, I believe, by uh a student, her name is Corinne or Corinne, Corinne, I think. Um, so let me see if I can answer your question, Corinne. Um, there um, are a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but there are several um, areas of educational inequality or inequities um, in Hamilton County schools that we are currently working to address. Um, and of course, we know that, um, just like you said, throughout American history, educational inequality policies uh, don't just come about, right? So there are a lot of things that have happened uh, over a course of time systemically to get us to where we are. Um, So we have um, about five schools that are considered priority schools. Um, They have been working um, 
for almost the past 12 years now to come out of that. And we've tried several different ways to do that. Um, the system has, um, and we still haven't been as successful as we, uh, as we would have liked. Um, we've made some strides, but we still have some work to do. And so there, the, and those schools um, are predominantly um, minority student populated. Um, the children um, that attend those schools are uh, about 90% free and reduced lunch. Um, so there, there's some socioeconomic disadvantage there as well. Um, and of course they are um, working very hard, extremely hard to um, close the achievement gap, right? And so those are some things that, of course, throughout a period of time and throughout history have been issues for for children um, as it relates to inequities. Um, We also, as a system, um, have worked um, and are working to um, become more um, intentional in the work that we do as a board, in the work that we do as an administrative team at Central Office, uh, Dr. Johnson and his staff. So upon Dr. Johnson becoming our superintendent, he created the first office uh, at Central Office of Diversity and Equity. And we have a a director of of equity, assistant superintendent of diversity and equity, Dr. Marsha Drake. And so our office is new um, to the system by the about two years in, but um, they have done some amazing work. They have, there was an equity task force that she um, created, or I don't want to say created, but that she comprised of, of community leaders and stakeholders to figure out what that work looked like for Hamilton County Schools. Um, of course, we as a board have just recently, we're in our second reading for an equity policy um, and, and what that looks like. Um, we're also talking about policies as to how to um, recruit and retain minority teachers. So those are some areas that we needed to work on as well. Um, of course, uh, educational inequities look a lot of ways. So like I, I made an example the other day at Board Agenda Session about we have some some schools that don't have um, the same equitable access to facilities um, that, that some other buildings have, athletic facilities, um, academic uh, resources. Our buildings um, are not um, equitable in that some of them are very old and, and need a lot of work. And we're working on a strategic um, building plan for that to make sure that our facilities are up to par and we have some brand new buildings, right? And so inequities can look a lot of ways. Um, I will tell you that I feel like the main struggle for that probably came when the systems merged because you had city buildings and county buildings and our city buildings were, um, of course, much older than the county facilities. And so we have some issues there. And then, of course, when you look at the makeup of Hamilton County, um, we talked about this uh, actually in our session last Tuesday on the 16th. There are just some areas, of course, just um, geographically and demographically. Uh, that cause us to um, have those inequities as well. So with that being said, that is uh, what I think are some educational inequalities um, here in Hamilton County. Okay, and so um, that was the question about educational inequality and what that looks like in Hamilton County. I didn't realize that the second question on the list asked, what are some ways the school board is working to secure educational um equality. Um, and I think I t- talked about some of the ways in which we were, um, were working to do that, um, actually in answering my first question. Of course, we still have a ways to go. Um, we're not perfect. It didn't take, uh, it wasn't overnight that these issues arose. And so um, we're not going to be able to fix them overnight, but we are working on ways um, in which we feel are, are ways to secure educational equity and equality 
inequality in our schools. Um, and so, like I said, we have a ways to go, but we are working on some things uh, to address those. Now, um, the third question asks, as Americans continue to face pandemic-related challenges, do you think the schools are prepared for in-person learning while staying safe? Importantly, how has online education affected the students' ability to learn, especially students with limited resources or, or vulnerable family situations. So um, we here in Hamilton County um, have been in a hybrid situation since um, school started back in August of 2020. We, um, at the beginning of the pandemic last March of 2020, of course, um, we did have to um, go completely virtual due to the numbers rising and, and the state of the pandemic here in Hamilton County. Um, by August, we uh, had went uh, through the process of having a task force to see what that would look like, a COVID-19 task force to see how we could work to ensure the safety of our students and our staff and teachers in the buildings. And of course, came up with the hybrid situation where there were children, um, I'm sorry, the parents had three options to look at um, for children being able to go uh, return back to school. So there was an actual in-person option where they could go back into the building. There was what we call Hamilton County Schools at Home, which was online learning with access to what was going on in their physical classroom, in their physical building. And then of course, there was a virtual school option and parents selected what they felt were the best options for their family and child um, at that time. And so we had a hybrid situation going on. Um, and then we of course had a phase tracker to address the numbers um, and to help us figure out if um, even with children being in the building, if we needed to do a two day in, two day out, one day to clean, um, if they were going to be in person four days a week, if they were going to be in person five days a week. And all of that was based on what the numbers look like um, as they decline and or escalated here in Hamilton County. And so um, we have been trialing that and, and, and it's been successful. The face tracker was very successful in us keeping our numbers down. In the event that a school um, became uh, exposed to a COVID positive uh, individual, the school was closed or children were sent home and the building was thoroughly clean, sanitized and disinfected. And of course, um, after a certain amount of days, the children returned back into the building for that. And so, of course, um, it has not been an easy process. It's very challenging because we know that children not being in the building makes it hard. We know they're working on um, teachers teaching online or teachers, teachers teaching hybrid online students and students in the classroom is a difficult task. It requires extra efforts. And we um, are very grateful to our students and our staff for the hard work and their dedication and determination they have to achieve learning despite the um, situation. Of course, um, we've had the virtual aspect as well. And there have even been learning pods created in various community settings to support students and parents in, in their family situations. Um, so uh, we feel like we have gotten a good grasp on things. Students are actually in the building. If they are in the building, they're back five days a week. Um, uh, we have worked to make sure that um, all of our staff has had access to vaccinations. And if they chose to be vaccinated, they have been vaccinated. At this point, I believe all of our staff that has been vaccinated is now fully vaccinated. Um, the second doses were given this past weekend. Of course, those are still op uh, available and options at our wellness centers um, and on the weekends in the community. 
So we're working to ensure that all staff has been vaccinated as well, because we know that our staff, um, a lot of them have elderly family members. They have families. We don't we wanted everybody to be safe. And so we understood that that was complex, but we wanted to make that um, as easy a situation as we could and be as flexible as we could to support all individuals involved. as to how online education affected the students' ability to learn, we know that was greatly affected because for some students, depending on your learning style um, and and where you are um, academically, that's challenging, right? And so um, sitting at at a computer or sitting at a tablet for a certain period of time throughout the day uh, is hard. Um, Of course, like um, the question asked about students with limited resources, we work to ensure here in Hamilton County um, with a community collaboration with Blue Cross Blue Shield, with uh, the Electric Power Board, uh, with um, the Urban League, with several community partners, uh, foundations, uh, philanthropy, um, to ensure that all students in Hamilton County had access to Wi-Fi, be it uh, through our Electric Power Board Wi-Fi, or be it through hotspots, or be it through uh, park uh, areas in school um, facilities where they could go and access Wi-Fi. So we tried to make sure that we were providing as much Um, available resources as we could in those aspects. If they did not have a technological device, we were able to provide those to them as well. Chromebooks um, were able uh, to be provided to them as well. And those that were in vulnerable family situations. We also, um, in in the beginning of the pandemic, up until probably about mid-year, we were providing lunches to students um, and and families um, that were home. Um, There has been a community outpouring of supports for those with food insecurities to make sure that children were able to eat um, even if they had to remain home and they were they were in those types of situations where they were uh, having vulnerable or limited resources. So we've tried to work as hard as possible, but it's been a community effort. It hasn't just been Hamilton County Schools, but the community has really stepped up to support us in supporting our students and families. Now, um, as um, I mentioned race and the number of minorities in the professional and elect- and elected careers um, are limited. And so the question is, do you ever do I ever believe that it might be the disinterest of the individuals and not necessarily Hamilton County or Chattanooga racial bias? Um, so I think the question is asking me uh, as it relates to the number of race um, or people, a uh, number of minorities in professional and elected careers, do I think that it's um, actually disinterest of the individual and not necessarily Hamilton County and the racial bias here? And I would have to tell you, this came from Helene. Um, I would have to say that um, it probably could be both. I don't um, know if that's the case because uh, in every race um, that I've seen here politically, um, or uh, as it relates to an elected official. And of course, in professional settings, um, it seems to me, um, and I have witnessed this personally, and I've witnessed this in my professional um, environments, um, there have been viable candidates. uh, There have been uh, people that have the skill that are able, that should be able to do these things. And, um, or be in these positions and they just have not been given the opportunity. And so um, that could come from a lot of different reasons. And I don't want to speculate. Uh, I can tell you though, um, I do find it very disheartening that in 2021, uh, out of a county and a city as big, uh, county, I'm sorry, city and municipalities as big as Hamilton County and its municipalities, that we only have six, 
um, maybe no, now seven people of persons of color, I'm sorry, seven persons of color elected to office. Um, that's very disheartening. That is not reflective of what our, our county and our city and our municipalities look like. Um, and I would like to see better representation, more diverse representation in those in those aspects. And so I can't tell you that it's one or the other. I would say that it's probably a mixture of the both. Um, oftentimes when you have certain experiences, you don't, uh, a lot of times you're discouraged or you don't find the value or interest in doing certain things because you don't feel like that there's value or interest in you being a part of that representation. I've heard people say that before, you know, why should I run for this or why should I apply for this job? They're not going to pick me anyway, because historically that has been the case in certain settings. And so when that is historically the case here in Hamilton County or Chattanooga, I would say that 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 probably is due to racial um, bias or that probably is due to stereotypes and generalizations and discrimination. Um, Also, on the flip side of that, I always tell people, well, um, if you don't apply, then you don't know if that's the case. And so, like I say, it could be a mixture of both. um, But I know historically here in Chattanooga that oftentimes it is due to um, the be it conscious or subconscious biases. Um, and that could be racially, that could be socioeconomically related, that could be class related. Um, but I do believe that there are some, there are several biases here that limit persons of color and or minorities and other variants um, from being in certain positions and professional settings. And that's just my opinion um, based on my personal experience and based on some things that I've witnessed um, with others. Now, there's a question from Jan. It says, due to discriminatory practices of discipline, students of color are more likely to end up in the school to prison pipeline. How else can discipline in schools be addressed to interrupt this pipeline? Pipeline, I'm sorry. And what do you think about restorative justice? So, Um, Do I believe in the school to prison pipeline? Yes, I do. Um, Do I think that this happens and has occurred across the country? Um, Yes, I do. Um, Do I believe that this is at some point in time have happened has happened here in Hamilton County? Yes, I do. Also, though, being on the other side, I know that oftentimes things that may be related to a school to prison pipeline um, are not intentional actions. Um, Sometimes if you're dealing with just obstinate and defiant children and you have to have, you know, uh, you have to find ways to have productive and um, non-punitive ways to uh, address those. And what I mean by non-punitive in that where it doesn't hurt them academically or um, educationally in their matriculation um, of learning, but that there are rules and the rules have to be followed. And for every rule not being followed or every action, there is a consequence. Now, I do not support negative consequences or those of things that are punitive or that lead to the school to prison pipeline. But I do believe that there that there should be discipline in a school um, setting and we have to figure out what that looks like now. Um, as to how else can the discipline in schools be addressed, I am very big on addressing the social emotional health of children. And oftentimes I believe that children um, and their behaviors are often um, results of trauma and experiences that occur outside of the home that um, end up in the buildings. Okay. And so I do believe that we have to work to address um, things that may be going on in the home and the community um, that the children um, 
innately hold within themselves. And of course they act out with that. Um, so I am a very big supporter and proponent of restorative justice. I am a very big supporter of things like calm down rooms, um, things, uh, yoga, uh, mindfulness, things that will help our children to address their emotions in a more appropriate way so that they don't act out in it so that it doesn't become disruptive and it doesn't become a discipline issue, but it um, ways in which that would allow them to address how they feel, um, to be able to work through that, how they feel and to find positive and productive ways to channel that energy so that it doesn't become a discipline uh, or behavior issue. And so those are my thoughts on some other ways that discipline can be addressed in schools. And um, what are my thoughts about restorative justice? I, I do support those efforts because I, I believe that when you do things um, in a more positive way, uh, there's a better outcome. So, um, question number, I guess, four, five, six. How do you think that people can incorporate communal raising into the United States social system? Is it possible for the greater U.S. society to accept a group of people coming together to raise children slash work together do you think that if we move in this direction that that would be a good thing so i will tell you i'm not as inept on the uh communal raising as in our into our social system as i probably should be um and so i don't really feel comfortable in going too in depth with an answer for this um i will tell you that i'm going to do some research on this to see how I feel about it and to see what um, the, the, the evidence research or the, uh, there's, if there's evidence-based research to support communal raising and the benefits to children and work uh, settings. But I do believe in village um, supports. I do believe in community um, taking a part and doing what is right for the commons. Um, but as to if, I, if we move into this direction, would it be a good thing? I'm really not sure, Maggie, but I'm going to do some research on that, okay? And if you all know of anything or want to share any insight about communal raising with me, um, please do so. You can always um, reach out to me via social media, um, Facebook or Instagram, or you can email me at um, jones underscore k at hcde.org, okay? Thanks. And um, we'll move right along into the next question. So they're um, asking me if there was one piece of advice that I could give to a person who is going into the education system and potentially working in these lower income schools um, and trying to help students that have been academically neglected, what would it be? And so I'm going to sell you to... Um, Actually, my piece of advice would be any different um, for anybody um, working in any type of educational setting, because I believe that when you love children and you have a heart and a passion for supporting children and educating young minds of the uh, of the future, then it doesn't matter what type of setting they're in. Um, because you're going to take to the child and you're going to love and support them and meet them where they are to help them um, excel and elevate them to where they need to be. And so I will tell uh, tell you that if you're going into a school that is a priority school or, or it is in a uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged neighborhood, um, don't go in with a savior complex, right? Like you're not going in to save save the children. You're going in to empower them and provide them with knowledge and resources and academics and intellects and love and nurturing um, that you would 
with any type of child in any type of school setting. I think where um, I believe some people go wrong when they go into these school settings with students that um, may have been ap- academically neglected or may be in a, in a uh, academic insecurity insecure situation, I'm sorry, or may um, have some disadvantage in those areas that people want to go in and save them. They're not asking to be saved. They love where they live. Um, They might not necessarily like their situation within their household, but some of them are very proud of their communities. A lot of our children are very proud of the schools that they attend. They just want what is rightfully due them. And so that's where my role as uh, as a school board member and and as a governmental official comes into play is that my job is to give them what they need to have equitable access um, to a quality education. It doesn't mean to change their environment or take them out of it. It's to make their environment conducive so that they have the equitable access to the academics and education they deserve. Um, I oftentimes hear student um, people say, well, you know, I'm trying to give them an opportunity that they that they need Well, give it to them in their building, make their building better, give them a new building, give them the books they need in their building. Don't condemn their neighborhoods. Don't talk about or demean where they come from. They they have a pride about that. Just make it better for them. Matter of fact, make it excellent for them. And I, I really love that our superintendent has this. Um, slogan uh, that he's coined, uh, I shouldn't say coined, but he's really pushing and in this our mantra here in Hamilton County Schools is that we expect excellence. And so I think when you expect excellence, then that trickles down. It goes, really, you should be expected from the bottom up, but when you expect it from the top down, either way, you meet in the middle and everybody expects excellence. So I love it when children and students, when I visit schools, call me on something that um, they don't like, like, or ask me why is their building a certain way or why do they have this or why don't they have certain things I love it because they're calling me um, to action they're advocating for themselves and so I will tell you that when you're going into work with these with these children that you're that you're referencing um, don't go in trying to save them go in and empower them to continue to be advocates for themselves and to know that they deserve better And you as their teacher or their educator, you advocate for them because you know that they deserve better. And of course, I'm advocating for them as their school board member because I know they deserve better. Parents should be advocates. Everyone should be advocates, but don't go in trying to save them. I think that that's my biggest piece of advice. Don't go in feeling like you you, you should be their savior. Um, The second question, I guess stemming from that is what are the most significant challenges I have I seen or that I have, what are some of the most significant challenges I, you have seen as a social worker in this city? That's what the question is. And so um, I will tell you that the lack of upward mobility has been a a challenge that I've witnessed as a social worker here in the city. Um, Maternal, um, Black maternal health issues, maternal morbidity, infant mortality have been issues that I have seen um, as, as a social worker here in this city. Children being born um, as uh, with neonatal abstinence syndrome or um, it is, a, is another challenging thing that I've seen um, as a social worker here, um, a need for us to uh, better our our, um, our families and our communities that um, have socioeconomic disadvantage. Um, here in Chattanooga, we have areas that are food deserts, that are financial deserts, that are education deserts, um, that are economic deserts. And I just, and, and they have a lot of blight. 
They have a lot of blight. And so those are all areas of, uh, of that I feel are significant challenges that we need to address here in the city. But I think overall, if we are able to um, change the upward mobility and economic mobility for our citizens here in Chattanooga and in Hamilton County, that a lot of these other things will change. Because as you eliminate poverty, you eliminate a lot of other issues that come along um, because they um, because poverty um, has caused them or influences the onset of them. So um, those are some 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 things that I've seen here in our city that I feel like are significant challenges and that really weigh heavy on my heart and and are uh, areas in which I advocate very strongly for here. Um, what is my most significant takeaway from 12 years of social work experience? So, yeah, um, I've been a social worker since 2005. So now I am embarking upon my 16th year, actually, as a, as a master's level social worker. Um, and my most significant takeaway um, thus far uh, as a social worker is that um, when I began in the profession, I thought I was going to come in and I was going to fix everybody and that I could save the world. And as years went by, I realized that if I could just help one person a day or change um, a situation for one person a day, then I was doing a lot. Um, but my biggest lesson that I've learned in social work is not to try to change a person but to meet them where they are and to help them get to the level that they want to be. So, and I, what I mean by that is oftentimes um, you may see people and you may say, um, well, she has, um, she's living in this situation and I want to, I want her to move over here. Well, who says that she doesn't like the situation or the, 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 the piece, the, the, the neighborhood, I should say, or the, the area of town that she lives in. Right. That's not for me to judge. Um, for me, uh, my role as a social worker is to make sure she has adequate housing and that she has housing that is safe and healthy for her. And if that's in a, a part of town that I may not particularly choose to live in, it doesn't mean that she shouldn't live there if that's where she wants to live, right? Um, and so I've learned not to to, inf uh, to influence people um, with what I think they should be doing, but to empower them and help them um, be where they feel like they should be and that's within their means and to give them the best life um, or give them the tools and the resources for the best life that they choose to attain for themselves, right? Um, with no judgment. I've learned a big takeaway for me is, is, is no judgment. Um, it's not for me to judge uh, people's actions or their past. My job is to uh, empower them and support them uh, where they are. Uh, it's not for me to judge because, but by the grace of God, I could have easily been in their situation. And so those are big takeaways to me is to love people where they are, to help them where they are, to meet them where they are. Now, uh, as a school board member, uh, what are some ways that I try to advocate for minority students? <laughs> so um, I guess the better question would be, what are some ways that I haven't advocated for minority students? Um, and I don't even know what that is. I am a strong advocate for all students. Um, and I know you're probably saying, well, that's not what I asked you. I asked you about minority students. Well, anyone who knows me knows that I am a very big advocate, advocate, I'm sorry, 
for minority students in their um, access to equitable education, resources, buildings, um, academics, experiences, everything, anything and everything that a child needs to um, have the education, a high quality education they deserve, I'm an advocate for. Um, I think the biggest way um, that I try to advocate for my minority students is doing what is right for all children. Um, When I was, uh, let me go back, in 2015, I was a, I was blessed with an opportunity to be a part of the inaugural cohort of the Harvard School of Business's Young American Leaders Program. And while I was there, um, the week that I spent in Boston um, learning and um, studying what that looked like to be a young American leader, um, the biggest discussion that we had was about our mobility and economic mobility and doing what is right for the commons, doing what is right for, for the, the, the general population, the common good, right? Um, and I, I, that, that was a big takeaway for me is to change the um, access to our mobility for my community and to be an advocate for that and to be an advocate for doing what is right for the common. And so um, when I do what is right for the common and when I'm advocating for what is right for the commons, then I'm advocating for not only um, all students, but I'm advocating for my minority students. And what I what I believe is that when I cast votes on the school board, um, or when I'm advocating for students, when I advocate for all students and when I do what is right for all students, my minority children that are represented in the district that I represent, they will automatically benefit. Now, I will say this, there are oftentimes because they have uh, lacked access or they didn't always have what they needed that we are playing catch up. And there are, there are areas in which I do have to strongly advocate for just those situations and for those um, particular um, needs. And so like with my priority schools or with the, the schools that are in the partnership network that we have with the state of Tennessee, the collaboration we have with the state of Tennessee for our priority schools, I do have to advocate um, on a different level for those particular students in those particular schools because uh, I don't want to say they're playing catch up, but they have significant needs and we have to do something different there if we truly want to turn around those schools. And so I have to advocate sometimes for additional funding or for additional resources or for community supports or philanthropic supports or foundation supports um, to get our students in those buildings and to get our teachers and our staff in those buildings what they need. Um, And I do with no hesitation. be it uh, if that's asking for additional funding, if that's asking for a resource, if there's asking for um, after school programs, if that's asking for um, extracurricular programs or technological equipment or uh, for increasing teacher pay or differentiated pay for certain areas. Um, I do those things because those particular children need that. If that's advocating for um, ESL supports, if that's advocating for um, maybe an English language transition program for our uh, students that are uh, doing English as a second language. I advocate for those things because that's what that student population needs to be successful. And um, oftentimes I'll hear, well, you all are always working to fix or to to, to advocate for things that those children need. What about the high-performing students? Well, we advocate for high-performing students as well. But oftentimes there there is a need for uh, our students that have um, some disadvantage that they need a little more advocacy because some oftentimes they get lost in the shuffle as everything 
has in the past historically been focused on the children that are high performing or in certain communities. And so we have to advocate for those minority students and those minority populations. And those are some ways in which I do that. Um, we already talked about what were some of the ways that um, the school board was working to secure educational equity. That question was on here again. Um, other than limited funding, what is the most obstacle, most difficult obstacle to reforming schools to reforming the schools that need it the most. Um, and I think I talked about this a little early and I talked about this in the actual session, but school reform uh, comes in a lot of different variations and, and wears a lot of different hats, right? Um, but there are um, some things that we have to look at. Like I know that initially when I came onto the board, we had just one diploma track and it was for college um, preparedness. But we've went back to the traditional high school diploma track and we've looked more into providing our students with options, not only for just college preparation, but for VOC and um, career tech um, options. We've placed those there. We've um, been innovative with our future ready institutes. Um, that Those have been community and business collaborations that, have, that are being um, implemented throughout our high schools and they're very successful programs. Our students are loving it, loving those. Um, they're crossing um, neighborhoods and areas of town to attend school. So there's some diversity coming into certain buildings. Um, and so there, there are a lot of ways in which um, we're looking to reform with that. We're, um, we're looking at how can we um, look at better restorative justice practices? What, do we, what does it look like to address the socio-emotional socio needs of children? All of those things are school reform, not just your typical um, eight hour teaching and get out the building. Right. And so um, limited funding is an issue, um, but we continue to advocate for that. We continue to advocate for that at the state level. We continue to advocate for that at the local um, level with our with our county um, funding. And we um, look at other ways to be creative with that. We have a Hamilton County Schools Foundation. Um, there are um, so many other philanthropic supports that we get in community and business support. So there are lots of ways that we can look at um, reforming schools, even with the limited funding, we just find other avenues to, to get that done. Um, do I think the schools in my district are outdated and in need of repair? Uh, yes, I do. Um, so I represent eight schools. Um, most recently, one of my schools that was outdated and in need of repair has closed. Um, and it a new building was opened in district five, which is the district that I represent. So Hillcrest closed and a new building was open. Harrison Elementary was open and the students from Harrison Elementary in District 9 and the students from Hillcrest Elementary in District 5 are now in a brand new building, uh, Harrison Elementary, and that building is in District 5. I'm excited about that because um, those students that are in that building have never um, had an educational experience um, in a building as brand new and, and nice and equipped with everything that they need um, like they do now. And so that that that's a amazing thing for them. Um, pretty soon I have another building that's going to go offline at the end of this school year, Lakeside Academy, and they, those children will go into that brand new building at Harrison as well. Um, and we are looking at other ways to renovate um, and provide additions and to update some of the buildings in my um, my district. Um, there have been things done at uh, updates and, and renovations, but there are some things that still need work. Um, I have a some high schools that need addressing. And that's hard to do because funding is a big deal about that, right? But I'm advocating for those because um, District 5, the district I represent, has um, often been forgotten 
uh, I, I believe in um, the building and facility situation. And what I know is historically, um, we were oftentimes trying to follow um, where there was expansion and growth in our county. And so that's where a lot of the brand new schools went. Um, the, the board prior to me, um, they were chasing growth. And so they would typically were addressing those needs in the areas where growth was. But I know as we continue to work on our long range facilities plan and building plan, that we are looking to address schools such as those schools in my district that are outdated in need of repair so that um, they can be healthy, safe, environments for our students that attend school in them um, because once again all children deserve safe healthy and um, adequate facilities and so um, those are um, that's kind of how I feel about the buildings in my area but uh, I do I do want you all to know that we are working um, to to change that that status for those buildings and the last question on here is, um, how do we change institutions to better serve black and brown children and young adults to give them the best leg possible to stand on? And that's a loaded question, but I will say the best way to do that is to make sure that we are providing equitable educational and academic institutions to our black and brown children. We have to do what is right by those children. They deserve it. They deserve it just as any other child of any other color, uh, race, creed, or socioeconomic background. Um, They deserve it. All children deserve it. And so um, oftentimes if you have to address, I feel like if we have to address certain neighborhoods and schools, then that's what you have to do to get it up to the standard. And I've been saying this for the past year or so um, as it relates to other race relations here in our in our county and in our country. Um, now is the time for those who have been comfortable for so long to become uncomfortable with us in the work to do what is right for our black and brown children in our communities and our schools and our resources to them. Um, that's how we change that. We systemically change that. We work to systemically change those things. We reverse um, the patterns and the, the culture and the climate that systems for years and years and years have uh, implemented. And so, yeah, we just continue to work on that and we work to ensure that we're doing what is right um, and what is equitable for all children involved. Amplify is a podcast network made up of people of color and operating out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Amplify is a project of Rise Chattanooga, a minority-based cultural arts nonprofit organization focused on community education, performance, and arts and cultural preservation. You can find all of the podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and risecha.org. Thank you so much for listening.